Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Bald Move Prestige podcast. We have a extremely interesting and unique movie to talk about today. It's 1993's The Age of Innocence. It's a historical romance film that's directed by Martin Scorsese. Y- y- that's right. Martin Scorsese, the gangster guy, did Downton Abbey. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to see it. Its screenplay was his frequent collaborator, Jay Cox, who joined him for Gangs of New York. Also, Silence. He also, I did not know this, did an adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep? It was later optioned by one Ridley Scott and turned into a film that you might have mm-hmm. heard of before. Uh, of course, Scorsese also collaborated on that screenplay. It's based on the book, The Age of Innocence by Edith Horton. Horton. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis. We know Daniel Day-Lewis. We've we've I think we're, we're damn near the close to collecting the complete set. Um, but we recently we? We talked yeah, we about like three or four. My left foot uh, got my left foot. And is that and then there's one, maybe other one we're getting. We're, we're closing on that. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Laundrette. I yeah, there are a few. There are a few. Michelle Pfeiffer. She was Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, she she teamed up with Coolio to save a bunch of at risk children in uh, Gangster's Paradise or something like that. She's been in a lot of stuff. Winona Ryder. We just saw her in Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's also stars Joanne Woodward, who is the narrator. I thought it's interesting that she's Paul Newman's widow and frequent co-star. And we recently saw her as Tom Hanks' mom in Philadelphia. Still alive. 92 years young. Jonathan Price, who was the high sparrow, of course, in Game of Thrones. But he's been in tons of stuff. General Perron and Evita. She's that Ted Turner villain knockoff and Tomorrow Never Dies, a James Bond film. Richard E. Grant, also prolific. He's been in Bra- things as ranging from Bram Stoker's Dracula to the Spice Girls Spice World. Logan, R- Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker. We most recently saw him as the Silver Age Loki from uh, the series Loki on Disney+. Plus. Michael Goh, uh, who I primarily know as Alfred, the butler in uh, the uh, uh, kind of early Tim Burton Schumacher Batmans. This was commissioned by Epic Mouthful, who's back again. She commissioned uh, the middle and end Lord of the Rings. That's the Two Towers, Return of the King. She also uh, commissioned um, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And she's back with this Martin Scorsese film. Before we get to her dedication, I want to get check in with you, Jim, because uh, yeah. I've been talking for three minutes and, and, and you've not yet been heard from. What did you think about this film going going into it first off i have to say you left somebody off the list here who's one of my personal favorites robert sean leonard playing uh daniel day lewis's son or you know newland's son in this movie at the end uh, where do we know him might, from might recognize him as uh house's oncology friend uh in house that's where i know him from He he's like 90s personified if you look at him you feel like you're in the 90s 
is my opinion. Even when he's supposed to be in 1870, he's still channeling that inner 90s energy. Yes. And I don't know mm. how. It's something about his face that screams 90s. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this movie, I think this is a very good movie. Um, I, I feel like uh, it's a hard movie to get into at the very beginning because there's a massive info dump, um, which I was unable to follow. I was completely unable to follow. And I feel like there's this is a good movie but there's a better movie in there um where they dole this information out a little bit smoother a little bit uh less of an info dump all up front um i i don't know i just i could not separate faces and names and anything that was happening at the beginning of this movie and eventually settled in when it focused in more on a couple of our characters uh i think the story that they're telling is a very interesting and nuanced one and it takes a an actor of the caliber of Daniel Day-Lewis, of, of the allure of Michelle Pfeiffer to pull this off. And they do. They, they pull it off really well. Um, and the ending kind of, in my mind, makes this movie. It's, it's kind of like 90% of this movie is you just acclimating to these people's lifestyles and understanding who they are. And then the end is what really just brings home everything you've seen. It, it, it recontextualizes, not even recontextualizes, it just straight up contextualizes everything else that you've seen before it. And it works. Yeah, I I love this film. I didn't know what to expect. Like I was, I remember thinking as I was sitting down and watching it, like, is this going to feel like a Scorsese film? And it kind of does. I feel like in the first 10 or 15 minutes, he pulls some kind of crazy dolly shots and some, some you know, these rapid fire edits. It's almost like a like a Baz Luhrmann uh, energy in some of these early opera scenes where everybody and and they are like and I love this because like the early goings where you said you were lost and didn't get it. I Those were the things that kind of hooked me because I love Downton Abbey shit. And mm-hmm. this is very much set in I think it's like 10 or 15, maybe 20 years before the golden uh, or I'm sorry, the gilded age that uh, Baron fellows just put out on HBO, which is ridiculous. But I love that Uh kind of gossipy bitchy people up each other's asses and business. And Oh, that family. And Oh, I can't believe they're parading her around. And I, I was instantly just fascinated by that stuff and I didn't get it all either, but I relaxed and figured that like, this is this type of kind of uh, Jane Austen stuff where you will just, 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 just swim in it for a while and you will eventually know the important people and what motivate them and all that. Yeah. And it gets there. And it was just that kind of fun experience until you get into like, well in the first sec to second act transfer. And then it becomes like this really serious, highly romantic piece about the nature of love and longing and, you know, um, being being trapped in in by the rules of your world, like there's there's a lot of people that immediately saw the similarities between this. Even though this is no one dies, maybe one person dies of natural causes in this film mm-hmm. uh, of old age. But this is not a Scorsese where people's heads are being put in vice grips and people are getting no. their eyeballs punched out and people are getting shot at, and there's nothing like that. But what it is, is a film about a ruthless world where people are held by very strict codes of honor and conduct. And 
the, them being entrapped in the the those rules. I, I guess first benefiting and becoming famous and wealthy because of those rules, and then those rules trap them and be, keep them from becoming the authentically happy integrated yeah. people that they long to be just like in casino just like in goodfellas mm-hmm. just like in raging bull just like in uh all of course so like i immediately saw why this material appealed to scorsese and why it fits into his overall works yeah i think directorially this is a strange movie for for him though because the the subject matter kind of demands a certain style and i think he brings like in the smoother camera work that he does, I think there's a, a real flair in there. Um, I particularly think of like an early dance scene where the camera is kind of on the dance floor with everybody and moving through the crowd, introducing people. And and it's a big info dump and I'm not following everything, but I'm following the camera and the camera is doing some excellent work. I think where Scorsese runs up against some problems here is when he tries, almost tries to force the Scorsese bit and his experimental like uh frontier pushing directorial style um into this movie i I think it really really does not work in those like very fast early cuts when you have somebody scanning the the crowd of an opera through binoculars and it's going like cut 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 all the way across the thing it tonally uh and, and pacing wise it just it takes me out of the moment um, I think there's a couple of things like th- th- there's a, a metaphor he's using here with a fireplace and some logs collapsing in the fireplace for like disappointment, I think. Yeah. Passions flaring up and collapsing and extinguishing. Yeah. yeah. And the first time it happened, I noticed it and I was like, okay, that's, that's an interesting visual metaphor. The second time it happened, I laughed out loud, literally laughed out loud because it's absurd uh, in, in just how forced it feels. In that moment. Um, and I think there's a way to tell that that story, get that emotion across visually, but he doesn't quite get there. So I don't know. This is a tough movie um, stylistically for me to recommend. I think it's best when it settles down and he's just using very smooth camera techniques to capture just what's happening in front of him. I, I don't think it needed all the extra flair, the Scorsese stuff he's trying to bring to it. No, I agree. I agree. I felt like because um, that's why in my notes, I was like, how long will this take to be a Scorsese film? And and I just was right. I, I wrote that down during the credit sequence, uh, which is interesting and beautiful in its own right. And then in uh. like 30 seconds into the movie, I'm like, I didn't have to wait that long because <laughs> right. and, and, and it's not indicative of the rest of the film. No, but I did feel thing. like Scorsese did almost like sign the piece. You know, it'd be like a Bob Ross started with a painting by doing his Bob Ross signature and then went on and painted everything like that's what it felt like, because nothing else in the film. I mean, there are there are some effective like there's like a a once a scene that's like approaching a oneer where you're following Daniel Day Lewis going through these as the book describes them, this inflated drawing rooms like you're just going into this inner sanctum after inner sanctum after inner sanctum to get to the draw. And you're going through all this artwork and all these people. Um, There's this. I don't know, like there's an authenticity in everything because like, I guess there were no constructed sets for this film. These, the, he found the original <laughs> oh, locations shit. in New York city and these dining rooms. And like uh, one of these places was, is now a frat house that they had to reconvert back into this like late eight, <laughs> 19th century wealthy to do up, you hmm. know? Um, so, and like the, just, 
there's some scenes of like maybe really want to smoke cigars. Uh, these guys with these like elegant silver, uh, you know, cigar snips and pokers and just like doing all this. Uh, these, these wealthy people that have just the very best of everything and mm-hmm. just observing them doing it. In fact, that was one of the other techniques that uh, the fact that in almost every scene, the camera never stops moving. It's subtle. But it was suggested, I can't remember which review that pointed this out, but it, it's the difference between a fixed f- film, uh, a camera that is showing something being observed, and then the camera is moving. It implies that there is an observer mm-hmm. and that like the enti- this entire film is shot from like a voyeur angle of someone just drifting through these parties, something walking through these rooms and seeing these people's lives being uh, lived from a re- remove. And I, I think... Yeah all that stuff tracks. I, I immediately want to watch this movie again. I didn't have time to do it, but I immediately want to watch this movie again. Cause I, I want to see how many of these things all track through because I, yeah, I thought the film was, was great. And it said like, I, I, it's, it's silly, you know, it's fantastical. Like I, I, what am I trying to say here? This is romance so abstract and so poignant, and I, I understand why it's appealing to people, like this the, mm-hmm. the height of emotion that one feels here. But it also feels like a fetish. Like like Daniel Day Lewis mm-hmm. is almost fetishizing this 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 love and and longing and romance, like in the exact same way that uh you would pay a dominatrix to whip you to feel that, that, that exquisite pain that you can't get from any other thing, or I don't know, cage your cock and balls and, and torture and tease you until you can't stand it no more. Like this guy mm-hmm. spins like, like goes for years just to kiss Michelle Pfeiffer's wrist. And, and then he, then, then that his love burns for another few years on those logs alone. It's something that I like, I'm like, this is fucking silly. Divorce oh. her, be with her, live your goddamn life. <laughs> well, but there's, there's also that, a fan, an inherent fantasy built into all this, which is exactly that Michelle Pfeiffer's character Ellen is exactly the person that that Daniel Day Lewis's character Newland sees and and desires. And I think that's that's the ultimate fantasy is that this person is perfect, um, and that if they were to run off and get married, there would never be any moments of doubt in his mind right this would be a fantasy life that he could live that would be great all the time and that to me is like you know it's but the movie never addresses that i don't think the the movie wants you to live in this fantasy world and that's fine um just you know I, i don't think anybody is ever perfect at all times when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, and that that's definitely I I didn't get that. I don't think that's an invalid interpretation. I was going more from like the emotional BDSM that oh, yeah. uh you know, it's like you can have one or the other. I or I guess it's the emotional version of you can have your cake or, uh, but uh, and and you can eat it but you can't have both. Like you, you can have this yeah. longing for this perfect relationship, but if you 
got that relationship, then you wouldn't have the sublime like right. hair shirt experience of longing and change the and, thing. Yeah. 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 Getting the thing changes the thing. And I, I think like it, it comes down to a question of who do you think Newland is at the beginning? Because I think they paint a picture of him and I might be misinterpreting a line here, but they paint a picture of him as a very prim and proper, you know, gentleman uh, on the outside, but on the inside, he looks at this nude painting in the, the uh, sitting room, which would be gauche, right? But the person put it there and he actually approves of that. I, mm-hmm. I, I might be, I might be misinterpreting that to him. No, he's the, the thing about it is, is he's, he is very kind and empathetic and loving, but also complex and worldly. Yeah. And those things are what attracts Michelle. That there's a great scene, the scene in the film where those are the things like, like Michelle Pfeiffer essentially says, those are, that's why I love you. And also if you do like, if you, if we would go ahead and consummate our relationship, though, you would be, you would not, you would be not yourself. You would be acting against those things. I love you. And then I wouldn't love you anymore. Mm-hmm. Which is actually I go through like I, to me that's like yeah that's like yeah mommy tie me up and spank me you know I give you know like don't don't give me the thing I want because what I really want is this that's uh, where I get that uh, yeah, yeah emotional BDSM take but I but the, but yeah like he's an interesting guy because he's uh, very forward thinking in a lot of ways um, but he's too kind and proper to you know be like a revolutionary or to put up a real fight in fact he. Uh, in his mind, he he dies. Uh, he is a corpse throughout the most most of the time that the, the movie takes place because he's denied himself the thing he wants because he believes so strongly in this world and its rules. And that's the thing, right? Like he does live within a world that is very rigid in its social structures, and he appreciates that. He likes that. I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, he wants necessarily the part of. I, I don't know, but then when when he goes and he sees Ellen. Uh, the thing that he loves about her is that she flouts those rules. So I, it, it's it's hard not to flouts, say she's ignorant of them, like that she's like um, well she's like yeah, she's, at, she's like Adam and Eve before b- before the the fall, right? Like she she's she's committing all these gauche social faux pas, and she's not aware of how much people hate. But she's innocent too. Like I think mm-hmm. that's like the title of Age of Innocence. It can, it's comparing her innocence which is truly like the pre-Edenic fall humanity. You know, she's come from Europe to America. She's got all these misunderstandings of how American culture works versus European culture versus Winona Ryder, who is the appearance of innocence. But there's a couple points where the facade slips and you actually find that she is a very has a very penetrating insight and she's going along with the role that she's playing. And but she is playing that that role that I actually came away from this movie loving is the, the sentiment that they leave the movie on, I I think Mm -hmm. is great. Um, And some of the lines that they, that they use to uh, bring you around to understanding exactly what was going on in the rest of the movie. Cause, cause it's tough, right? Like there's so much composure in Daniel day Lewis's performance here that it's sometimes hard to even recognize what emotion is going on. Um, And so the things like the wrist kiss, are are super important to let you even know that he cares in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but, but then you get to the end of the movie and you realize how much he did care because of some of the lines um, that his son says uh, 
and they're things that his mother told him, right? I, I the best line in this entire movie to me is when he tells um his father, the Newland, that he knew he'd be safe with his father because his mother had told him he gave up the thing he wanted most. He was mm-hmm. willing to make a sacrifice for his family when it came down to it, right? Yeah. And he's already given but up you could the rely. thing he wanted most, so there's nothing that could further challenge that. You could rely on him to pursue other people's happiness over his own. Yes, and it's it's a beautiful sentiment. It's it's It explains the rest of the movie entirely. Um, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, without that, I would have been left wanting a little bit. Um, gosh, there's so much more to say. I'm trying to think. I, I, I imagine a lot of people, like even Scorsese fans, uh, probably didn't know he directed this film because this is, again, so far outside his normal catalog. Um, in fact, that was like when I first became aware of it. I was going through like, okay, what other DDL movies do I need to see? Oh, this Age of Innocence. Who directed that? I'm curious. Martin Scorsese? What the fuck? Uh-huh. Um, so maybe we should, before we even get to Epic Mouthful's dedication, we should talk about what this film is about. Okay. This film um, is uh, stars Daniel Day-Lewis, and he is this character named Newland, who is a very a young man in uh, 1870s, post-bellum uh, United States, New York City. And he is a, uh, a nobleman by American standards. He's a gentleman of, of, uh, of, of positive birth, is from a wealthy family. He's a lawyer. Uh, at a prestigious law firm that represents cases in front of the Supreme Court, they 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 hint at, um, mm-hmm. and he is setting himself up to architect the perfect life uh, for himself. They he's like you know his his main indulgences are books. He likes to read about things around the world and be well educated. And he's got this young twenty two year old Winona writer that he's engaged to, and he's ready to set himself up a prim and proper life and and go about his uh, his. Uh, because she belongs uh, it, to a very prestigious family. Yes. As well. And this will be like, a, you know, like a Lannister Stark wedding. There is going to fully yeah. reunite the upper crust of New York City at the time. The monkey wrench is Michelle Pfeiffer, the countess from Poland, who has married some rake, rake, rakish, rakish husband who philanders on her and embarrasses and humiliates her. And in revenge, she's come to stay uh, with her family, who happens to be Winona Ryder's family in New York City, seeking a divorce. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be the lawyer who is going to try to talk her out of disgracing her family by getting this, this divorce thing. And because she is from the continent where they have very strict moral things uh, and rules and she's coming to America because America has told Europe that we're not like you and we don't have these same restrictions. We'll divorce a woman, but she's not aware of all of the purely social laws that she's. And and this is what attracts uh, initially Daniel Day Lewis to her. And then the movie is, will they, won't they, will Daniel Day Lewis overthrow this young, innocent Winona writer, potentially breaking her heart, ruining his own reputation to pursue happiness with the, uh, the 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 deliber- deliberated uh, countess, or will he settle down and fulfill everyone every societal's expectation of him, uh, and and live this quiet life of desperation? And mm-hmm. uh, that's the stakes. They're introduced thirty minutes in the movie, and there'll be two more hours of it. So <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. Score says he's shorter movies. This is true. He does a lot. It's of not long. Hour plus movies. This is just over two. 
Yeah, like two hours, 19, um, with a lengthy intro credit sequence and a lengthy outro credit sequence. Um, but I think it's 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 gorgeous. It's very mm-hmm. well shot, well lit. The lighting is amazing. Um, it's if you like Downton Abbey, if you like, you know, it's stuff. And if you, if you like the Gilded Age for, for sure, uh, I think you'll really like this. And if you're a person is not a fan of Scorsese's work, because it's all just a bunch of bloody boy films where people get their gut splattered and, and, uh, Joe Pesci's, uh, you know, <laughs> forcing hookers heads down on his car crotch and stuff like that. This is not that this is none of that. There's no. none of that. There's not even a steamy sex scene. It's all longing. Um, let's get to Epic Mouthful's dedication. She says, uh, hello, dear bald move cult leaders. I love this movie. When I first saw it, I don't remember if I saw it because of Martin Scorsese or I saw it because I was shocked or, and was in shocked to see it was directed by him. The costumes, the period area, the long, slow scenes where literally nothing happens. In fact, nothing happening is a major plot point. I'm not kidding. I'm not spoiling anything. It's pretty hard to ruin a movie where nothing happens. And yet this may be the most brutal gangster film I've ever seen. I'm being hyperbolic to make Mm. a point. Obviously, Scarface, the most brutal gangster film I've ever seen. But what I mean is after listening to the good, uh, the bald move podcast about Goodfellas and gangs in New York and the Godfather, I was this year's old when I realized the age of innocence may be Scorsese's best gangster film after Goodfellas. Watch this movie and argue with me afterwards. I'm being fully serious. I rewatched the gangs in New York after listening to the Bald Move podcast about it. And not even your compelling podcast could convince me gangs in New York is better than Age of Innocence as a gangster film. <laughs> to me, Scorsese aimed too high with the gangs in New York. I was disappointed when I first saw it. It wasn't the Shakespeare that Scorsese wanted it to be, which is too bad because I thought he'd already achieved those heights with so many of his other films, especially Goodfellas and especially the Age of Innocence. I could be biased. I'm easily blinded by gorgeous costuming, acting, and directing. I hope at least one or two of you enjoy this movie. Thank you. Keep carrying on. The smiles you all and the community provide, I have no words for how much I appreciate it. I found you all when I was trying to find a reasonable Game of Thrones podcast, and I've been a fan ever since. So much so that I now listen to everything, even if I don't watch and will never watch a show. Why bother? I have bald move to watch it for me. Mm. (laughs) Seriously, though... Though uh, throughout my cancer fun times and now, you'll recall that uh, Epic is a recovering cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And uh, now my partner who's been diagnosed with leukemia, Jesus, mm. you guys cannot catch a break. Uh, you all are the perfect mix of whatever reasonable people are looking for in a podcast and community. Thank you. P.S. I cannot believe I've lost Best Commission two years in a row now. And yes, I commissioned this movie knowing full well it's only going to contribute to my losing streak. Despite my commission, once again, filling a bald move hole. And it is. You're filling a Scorsese hole, a Daniel Day-Lewis hole. We appreciate it. And uh, I I hope your partner uh, beats his cancer thing. Uh, For sure. From the bottom of my heart. Yes. Uh, you might actually also be filling uh, Michelle Pfeiffer hole. Um, I've never really appreciated Michelle Pfeiffer until this movie. I think it, it, there's, there's something about the restraint that she shows in this movie. Um, and yet the, the life in the performance uh, that I, I mentioned, like she's alluring and I think that that's dead on uh, that. I've, I've just never quite seen it in this way before. I thought we said that same thing when we watched Scarface, though, that maybe 
Maybe it's hard to say, but I, I agree. I've uh, I've seen Michelle Pfeiffer in a lot of like rom com type stuff and like some silly stuff like Catwoman. But when you see her like really bring all of her skills to bear and, and hold the screen opposite Daniel Day Lewis, I actually was really impressed right. by it. Winona Ryder, because like I think some of her younger roles, I was always kind of like, I don't understand why. But that scene where she's in the garden and the DDL is trying to move up the the wedding and mm-hmm. she just turns on a dime and is like asking all the penetrating questions that I couldn't believe she's even thought to think of to ask. I'm like, oh, wow. And again, doing it opposite of Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, I don't know. I like it's pretty incredible. I was not uh, as impressed with her in this movie as I am in some of other movies. I, I really like her as like a sarcastic, mm. uh, you know, fun loving sort of teen i guess um yeah and she gets to that place also in like stranger things even though she's like 50 or something um that's the character i like that she does the best this didn't really do it for me but michelle pfeiffer yeah i was really into what she was doing it's funny because i feel like she's playing the mina harker role from from dracula just like an object of masculine desire to be one but like i said there's those few scenes where she drops Mm -hmm. that act and you see kind of like the mercenary part of her like I'm setting myself up for life and I'm setting it up for my family and for my children. And I don't have all this angsty bullshit that you got about seeing the world and doing like where you see her actively conspire to, I guess, trap this guy. I think that's what makes it. Yeah. Cause like her in Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula, she is just the baseline kind of, you know, object of desire. I thought there is a little bit more, a little bit more flashes of her in this. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I don't know that she's trying to trap him. I think she's giving him all the outs. You know, she she's willing to not trap him here. Um, she doesn't really want to trap him, at least early on. Uh, she gives him an opportunity to say, "Yeah, I actually just want to go be with this other woman." Ah, <sighs> I think that's a surface level reading of it, though. Okay, like, I mean, convince me because like it's literally <sighs> what she's saying. Yes. But like saying that to a guy in Daniel Day Lewis's position of like, yeah, you know, we're engaged, sure, and we've announced it already to all of high society. But I personally would forgive you if you broke this off and jilted me and left me. And 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 honestly, that's what I would like. It it by the rules of society, her being so cool mm-hmm. makes him even a bigger asshole for breaking sure. it off. Yeah, so like, I feel like that was a end. I feel that was a calculated move by her to give him that freedom, knowing that would bind her him to her even strong, strong, strongly, more strongly. Huh. OK, yeah. I mean, I'm not nearly as steeped in like the social uh, hierarchy and the, the social uh, rules of that world. So, yeah, you, you could absolutely be right. I, I think she's definitely playing games later on. Um when she finds out about the pregnancy and she has told Ellen already about it two weeks earlier and is just coming to him now having, having confirmed it um, and causes her to go back to Europe. I, I think all that stuff is definitely her playing games there. Well, and that's like, again, one of the more brilliant scenes in the movie when um, Daniel Day Lewis realizes that he has been out, maneuvered by the entire family and community like they Uh have all gotten the the cotton that this danger of him falling for the countess and worked in unison without 
like it's an emergent behavior property. Like they didn't talk about it. There was no official discussion. Uh It's just everyone played their part to make sure that that could never happen and that he had to stay faithful and loyal and that uh, uh, everybody played their part, including Winona Ryder uh, dropping two weeks before she was sure the knowledge that she's actually, uh, you know, carrying his child Uh because she knew that the countess would then go ahead and play the part that she would because she couldn't possibly, you know, uh, it's one thing to disgrace herself, and but uh, and and uh, what's this guy's name? It's jo- is it Jonathan? Who? Uh, Daniel Day Lewis. I keep on Newland. referring to him as Daniel Newland Archer. Newland Archer. His first name's Newland. His last name's Archer. Yeah. Um, it's one thing to disgrace themselves and go live a quiet life, you know, somewhere on the continent or somewhere in India or Japan, but to uh, destroy this family the fact that like there's children now involved that would be essentially bastards she couldn't do that yeah yeah no i I like a lot of those scenes where they're kind of explaining and this is typical scorsese stuff right through narration um Mm -hmm. exactly what's going on what he's thinking uh there's a scene later in the movie where they say because nobody was talking about how he was how he was in love with michelle pfeiffer with ellen uh, he knew that everyone knew because yes. nobody had, had had said anything. Yes, it's that's what it's I that's, that's the scene like I was talking about. Behavior. Yeah, yeah, it's like the cell door shutting behind him that he and he's already walked into it, and now he realizes uh, how he's looked and how everyone has perceived it and all that kind of stuff. And there's a yeah, it's yeah. similar to um, there's this line where you because you, 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 uh, you asked me. Um, you asked me why when Nona Ryder said, hey, look, you're free. You can jilt me and go off and be with the Countess if you want to. You know, he talks about them both being free because he thought that she was going ahead and pursued the divorce. He's actually talked her out of that. And they're both technically free. But what you got to understand is there is what's legally free. Mm-hmm. There is what is by social convention you being free. And then there's also the self image of themselves that they have to uphold. Like it's very important to Wayland. No, no, no. Uh, Newland. It's very important to Newland (laughs) that not only is he compassionate and kind and correct, but that he is also seen as that. Sure. Like it's, it's, it's as much a part of his image of himself as that he is seen as those to be correct from those standpoints as that he actually is. And -hmm. it's the opposite because like right after that scene, there is a scene of his wife. He's met someone that he thinks is very clever and would like to invite him over for dinner because, you know, he, he craves that intellectual stimulation. And when owner writer says, Oh, I thought he was rather common. And then he realizes that, like, oh, I can never have, like, a common, clever friend again. Like, that's just a part of me that's going to have to die. And, and y- yeah, yeah, the, the Jonathan Price, uh, what, Frenchman? Um, yeah. It's sent over Monsieur to... High Sparrow. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, to try and recollect Ellen. Um, but yeah. not But not doing it. There's another man who uh-huh. is... Yep trying to do the right thing within the societal structures and the codes of honor that he's been given. Yeah. Doing, doing his duty to satisfy, you know, his charge, but not doing the thing that he knows would destroy this relationship or whatever, because he feels for the, the people involved. 
there, there's something real there um yeah that's the thing um and and a lot of these stories one of the main points is of how like the aristocracy like they follow these rigid rules but they also have exceptions that they can carve out for themselves um based on essentially lies and dissembling and maneuvering sure and even reputation and and power you know but some the people com- can just straight up break the rules if they want but from out, from but, but from outside you don't under like a, a commoner couldn't do that a commoner couldn't right. uh have an exception made just because oh well they're a really good person and this is a bad marriage and we need to make sure that you know, like that scene of like, hey, I need to go back and tell this uh, this count that I did exactly what I told him to do. But I'm telling mm-hmm. you that I need you to subvert that. And I know that you have the final say because you have more pull with these people. So, like, we're both going to be cool. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the only the only ointment in that is that uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis really, really, really wants here to, to, you know, do do the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, it's it's why you can develop any empathy for these people because they do feel from birth sort of trapped into the system that the the social system that they're in, right? I I think all these people are ridiculous on their surface, but as real people operating in a system that is very structured, you can understand why when they want to stray outside of that and they're unable to, that would be uh, tough. That would be torturous for them. I'm glad you brought that up because I think uh, I'm, of course, self-conscious that this is the first commission that's followed succession, which was its whole whole ordeal. But I think there's a lot of people would be like, aha, Aaron likes stories of crazy ass rich people (laughs) with their stupid problems they cause by themselves and stuff. And I've actually thought about that because on the surface, it seems like um, I'm I'm you got me in a crushing grip of reason and I'm just being pounded by the hammer of logic, my own hypocrisy. But I think the difference is that in this era, like, and it kind of, it Downton Abbey flirts with this era ending. There mm-hmm. is an innocence, like the social betters thought that was like science and logic and the people they're lording it over agreed with them. Like, well, yeah, the Lord and lady and the people with money, they're just better. Like, you know, and in and, and a way that we could never be. They're just better. They have better blood. They have better breeding. They're a better class of humans. They're like the elves in Lord of the Rings. They're just better than we are. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of like a, this number one, a little bit more of like these rigid rules are so rigid that they and we talked about how people can color outside the lines, but it, it does kind of like bite them in the ass and they have to lie in the bed that they've made. And also, it's just fundamentally more fair. Like, these rich people, like, their children die at similar rates to poor people. Like, their disease gets them uh, either way. Like, there's... And I I feel like um, the reason the modern rich people stories don't appeal to me is, like, we're post that society. And, like, what... it, It feels to me like some of the, the the anger that I see people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and people have is that they are as rich as the pharaohs of old, but they have to feel bad about it because if they okay, had this money sure. a thousand years ago, they would just be worshipped as gods and lords and they would have blue blood, which is literally, you know, like divine you know shit and they're appointed by God. They don't have to feel bad about having this nice stuff because they were entitled to it. This God wants them to have this kind of stuff. And now people like we're told in, in most of the Western world that everybody's the same as everybody else. So people that have this conspicuous wealth have to feel bad about it because they can't 
you know, they either can live life and be like, well, all these homeless people in the street, I'm just better than they and they deserve what they got. But they can't really think about that because we're post enlightenment. I don't know. There is some wasn't well, like just another social structure that's trapping those people. I, I don't know. I don't I don't want to push back too much because I'm with you. I, I, I don't think, like the modern yeah. stories of, of ultra wealthy people. I think there's something inherently offensive about watching and asking me to sympathize with those people because they know um, it. They know it. They know that they that that this is a that the deep down they they know that this is kind of unconscionable and this isn't right and they don't deserve it sure. and the world yeah. would be a better place if it was more fair and he, but like these and people we all didn't. know it and it's happening right now you know I, I think there's there's a remove that you get a hundred years uh, on where you can say okay these these people maybe were doing the same things that the the current uh, ultra wealthy are doing yeah but but but. It, it, context of the time aside it's just farther removed because these are yeah. this is a hundred years ago you can step outside of that yeah i don't think you can step outside of seeing a billionaire playboy jet around the globe uh it, it doing all the terrible things he's doing while you know people are suffering actively actively yeah. in the real world it's and the underclasses are no longer um i, uh, I mean they're definitely they're no longer playing their part they're no longer Certainly. like uh, in, in this movie, they got wealthy fat and there's like all these servants and they're still, you know, this isn't Europe, but they're all like ape in the European style and they got their butlers dressed up in their butler uniforms. They got their footmen and footmen mm-hmm. uniforms and they're literally serving these people like they are props. They don't you don't have conversations with them. You yeah. uh, they, they just whisk away your shit and they clean your things and they buff your lamps and they feed you your food and they uh, act perfectly because that's their job. Whereas there's still locations where you can have that kind of level of service, but you don't know, like your butler might be secretly recording you or they might be laughing up the, they might be making fun of you down, you know, and then they might be judging you and they might be, um, that, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, like I, I like, there's something a little bit more, I can take these people a little bit more seriously because they genuinely down to their bones, believe it in a way that the modern age just doesn't allow them to. Which I think is one of the big uh, why why the seems like the people on top uh, are so angry because like they got all the shit, but they can't enjoy it in peace. Uh, Maybe that's why they want to go to Mars or make micro islands in the Pacific where they can be free of us all. But then give away 99 percent of your shit to the people who need it more still have more than you could ever spend in your entire life and be happy. Right. Which is uh, which is hilarious because like that is what obviously Daniel Day Lewis and Michelle Pfeiffer should do. They should fuck the old woman and her money. They should fuck their reputation. They should move Mm -hmm. someplace like India or Japan or whatever. And uh, where no one can know them and none of this stuff matters. And they'll be hated by the locals for different reasons. And they can live as happy as a life that they can. Instead, they are going to maintain their status and wealth and and be uh, not miserable. Because that was the other thing. I thought at the end of this movie where Daniel Day Lewis's wife dies, you know, Winona Ryder dies, and he said, like to his surprise, he genuinely mourned her because she was this great lady that held their life together and she loved her children and she right. made sure everything happened correctly. And um, you know, he's got like, you know, he loves his children very much. Like he has a very great relationship. Like I thought that was cool, is like his son wanting to take his dad on this one last adventure. And uh, his son also being perceptive enough to figure out the like decode his father, you know, mm-hmm. based on bits that his mother yeah. told her on his deathbed and like give. Oh, and so I guess like let's just talk about this. 
it was my reading that his son had put together all these pieces, realized that, you know, his mom had died. His dad has done nothing but the right thing by all, everybody for his entire life. And now guilt free. The countess is still alive. She's unmarried. There's even a, a point where Daniel Day-Lewis is reflecting to himself and he's like, I'm only 57. I've considered myself dead my whole life, but I still have a whole other chapter. Mm-hmm. And his son takes him there deliberately to meet the countess. And he doesn't go up. What yeah. happened there? Because so I, have, I, have, I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious to see what you thought happened there. I do too. I, I could be wildly off base here, but... In my opinion, it's to to honor his wife, to, to not spoil the idea that he has given up the thing that he wanted most for his family. But what but how would that because even in his day, it was a thing that widows and widowers would would remarry like there was no shame in it. There was sure, not like sure. it wouldn't be scandalous for him to marry the count countess rather. No, no, not that it's scandalous, but like he he realized that like the the sacrifice he made was important somehow to his family, right? Um mm. that that was like I I don't know. I I can't actually express what the, like the sentiment I'm trying to get at here, but like there's something about honoring his wife and this this sacrifice that he has made there in my mind. Okay. I don't know why th- else you why else you would do that. I think there's a the other well there's a couple of solutions or a couple of posi- a couple possibilities here. One of the other possibilities is if you go into my emotional BDSM is that he still wants to feel that sweet sweet longing. He doesn't want to consummate okay. this. He because he this is a this is a pure thing that he wants to c- take to his grave. But I also hmm. think there is right. something one of the jaw dropping sequences of this movie is the lighthouse scene where like everything was kind of like very uh, realistic and there's not much heightened reality uh, and it's very, you know, authentic on set. Everything's shot with the ambient lighting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he, he's, um, you know, he's married to an owner writer uh, and he's visiting this uh, the, the Winona's grandmother, who's this great lady in her own right. And by happenstance, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's there and she's playing her part. She sneaks out the back and runs down this garden path that takes her to the beach. And mm-hmm. Granny, who I think is half oblivious and half just a shit stirrer, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, go fetch her. She'll want to see you both all. And and uh, Dana does. I don't want to want to do. So he goes down and he arrives at the scene where Michelle Pfeiffer is sitting at the end of a pier. And there's this golden sunset and this. It's like beautiful. It's like every frame painting. This is that to a T. It's so unscorsese. But the narrator says that he gave himself an out that he played this game where there's a sailboat crossing the the lighthouse and if it gets to the other side and she doesn't turn around then i'm going to tell everyone that i couldn't find her i didn't see her it's literally true and i will have avoided all this and michelle pfeiffer at the end or uh, later on reveals that she knew that was happening and she Mm -hmm. was playing her part by refusing to acknowledge him so that this thing could continue okay so that's an extension of that uh, at the end. Like, like they, he's playing what, now they, his part. They both because like what happens is 
the boy went upstairs and met the countess and she's like, where's your father? And he probably said, oh, he's actually waiting outside. I'm sure if you came to this you know, window and beckoned him in, he'd come up and what happens? And he's just looking at the window, looking at the window, looking at the window. And then finally her butler comes and shuts that open window. Mm-hmm. And I think they both needed the other one to extend themselves in some way like they weren't going to be the one to break the social convention they needed the other person and they're both waiting for that to happen and it never did so yeah but the social convention like you said doesn't restrain them anymore right it's it's right so he should have come up why didn't he and she knows that he's down there for a reason so instead of her playing, like, instead of her doing the, like, well, come on, not stop being silly and come on up. I want to see you. She doesn't tempt him. Mm-hmm. I, that, what I'm saying is I yeah. don't understand. I, I don't I understand. The only on thing, the, that the only thing that makes on, sense is the emotional BDSM that they both wanted this sublime longing of what they didn't have more than they wanted. They wanted that pleasure, that certain pleasure than the uncertain pleasure yeah. of having yeah. something maybe they don't want. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of Which sense. Which is goes back to what I think your original theory of, you know, uh him th- this this perfect thing they had that might be sullied yeah, by making it them real. Being fantasy characters uh that certainly aren't real people. Um and they would probably find that out pretty quickly if they actually consummated that. Cuz that th- that scene is definitely meant to evoke the beach too, right? Like the glare on the window as he looks up at it, he's transported to back to that the twinkling. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. The, the light hitting that. And like, he is transported back in that same moment, that same holding his breath, hoping like, I yeah. even love like when he walks away from the beach, he comes back and turns like he, he sets this rigid rule for her, for himself that he kind of like, you know, it's kind of like when you're doing giving you a kid a countdown, like, Hey, you got to do this or something bad's going to happen. And they're dragging her feet and you don't really want to punish them. So you start doing the two, two and a half, two and three <laughs> right, court, right. you know, like start like he's, he's like, okay, well the it's past the lighthouse. Now it's past the rocks. Okay. I guess she's not going to turn around. I'm going to walk, look back as she catch. Oh, I guess she's not look back again. She's still, I thought that was, well, there's like another said, line in that ending part that had kind of connected for me that this whole, uh, feeling to his, his dead wife to Winona Ryder because he he says how important it was to him that someone had actually guessed that he had this longing and and pitied him for it because he had to give that up. Um, and then he says, and then it should have been my wife. It, it moved him and it inexpressibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me, like the reason I was leaning toward the it's something to honor his wife, the why he doesn't go up there, is because of that line mm. that they that they put in there. So. Yeah, there could be a couple of different sentiments they're going for. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I thought about that a lot, too. The The idea that he his whole life, one of the things that made him the most miserable is that he did this enormously romantic gesture. And that and nobody like it went unnoticed. And yeah, yet, it's like a, to find a, out that it didn't go unnoticed and she had actually understood. Yeah, that's it's incredibly moving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in, in a weird way, though, because, like, again, I feel like uh, that was also the proof that she knew what she's doing the entire time. Sure. And it's extremely sad because he can't then go to her and 
right. and tell her thank you. You know, you know, like I thank you for understanding, right? Yeah, There's it's, no it's one to such, commiserate there with. Like I said, this is this is some wild shit. This is some like romantic. Uh, oh, I think yeah. this is dysfunctional shit. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I can I can relate because I've had instances like where I was a younger man and I had some like, you oh, know, romantic yeah. entanglements where I remember one time uh, <laughs> uh, I was like 19 and I drove up to see some girl that I dated in high school before I got married uh, as kind of and this was kind of like a big make it or break it. It was like, am I going to stay a witness or not? Or and I met her at college. We had dinner and it was a really nice time. And then we had this frank discussion about like, am I going to, you know, leave my religion? Is this you going? this and like we both agreed that's like you know that that would be a betrayal of who we are and I drove off and the whole time I'm thinking I should walk I should fucking turn this thing around right now and like mm. nah undo it all and we we actually I got then I got married lived the whole fucking life dated her again like 12 years afterwards and one of the first few dates we had we talked about that situation and she turned out stayed at the restaurant another 30 minutes hoping I would come back and do that <laughs> uh-huh that's extremely romantic, but that's stupid. Yeah, People yeah. should just say how they feel so they can be happy. But like it, it is also, I don't know. It was also, um, it's nice. I guess it's nice. It's nice to be a young person and have these very heightened relationships. And the, the, the tragedy about these yeah. people in the time is they were cal- that the, the, they, they, they got calcified where they couldn't ever like do what I would consider from a modern age, the right thing, which is like, you're miserable. I'm miserable. Neither one of us are living up to our full potential. Let's split no harm, no foul and go and find the people who are really going to make us feel fulfilled and all that. But there's traps well, in I that. Mean, life too, is sacrificed you know? too, right? Like, like life is compromise. Um, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and as it, there, I don't know that there's anyone who understands longing and sacrifice and disappointment more than a young man who is brought up in a religion that does not allow them to date until they are sure. ready to get married. Right. Like that, right. those teenage years are so fucking confusing already. And then you yeah. throw in that, that restraint and it's like, right. Jesus, you're, you're into the 1870s high society kind of bullshit. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, I you're really moments like that, you know, where you make sacrifices for what you know is is the life that you need to live as opposed to the life you want to live. I've definitely absolutely had sacrifice moments like that. I think everybody who has right. You can't get yeah. through life without making some kind of compromise. And it's if if it's a big compromise or if it's if it's a, the right compromise, it's going to be painful. Yeah. And there's man, as far as romance, like there are some fucking lines in this movie. Like this book must be incredible uh, uh, because like, there's I, I what I assume are direct quotes. But uh, that line where Daniel Day-Lewis hadn't seen the countess in years and he has this opportunity to go pick her up at, um, you know, a port or whatever. And it's going to he knows it's going to be a two hour ride. And he's just looking forward. It's like, I'm going to have her to myself for two hours in this cab. Mm-hmm. And when they get together, he's like. It's been years since I've seen you, but every single time you happen for me all over again. Yeah, yeah. And she says, "Yes, I know. It's the same for me." And then there's the there's the untidy wrist smooching uh, that never quite ends up. But I was like, "Oh my god, you happen for me all over again!" What a fucking line. Very romantic. Uh, and and I, I I was struck in just how private those those carriages are. You know, like yeah. there's nobody else on the road, right? And if they are on the road. They're like following you single file. You've got the curtain in the back. The driver can't right. see you. It's just like, yeah. And how long the journeys always are, right? You're sure. never in a cab for five minutes while you go down to the grocery store. It's like an affair if you're getting into a cab. 
Yeah, there's just so many great turns of phrase. I talked about the enfilade drawing rooms. I thought that, like, you know, this, this, uh, like, an enfilade is like a very strong military def- defensive position, and like how these are. The, the, the way to describe those rules is like have to fight through all these inner sanctums to get to the part where this person idiosyncratically hangs a nude painting, which is mm-hmm. which is funny because like they also show these people going to the art museums and like there's nudes aplenty there. Uh, there's right. all the sensuousness, but like in your home privacy of your house, that's that's considered Personal collection. Yeah. Lewd and. And uh, the the line where uh, all of the carts or all of the taxis, the the cabs were lined up uh, after the play would get out because the observation that the Americans want to get away from their amusements faster than they got than, than they get to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and then there's like this the meditation of like what's fashionable versus what's respectable. You know, is it enough to be respectable or to climb that next ladder? You got to be respectable and fashionable. Just so many great, great lines, and like I, I, yeah. I definitely want to watch this movie again because I thought it's it's beautiful and something I didn't expect from Scorsese. Uh huh. No, the the writing is really good, um, and I I do wish I was uh, maybe could have dipped a toe into the the high society social structure before this movie started and, and kind of like waded into it. But man, they really just drop you in the deep end. Well, see, that's why you should have watched 10 Hours of the Gilded Age with Carrie Coon, because that sure. would have been the prime. You would have understood all this six, stuff. Six, seven seasons of Downton Abbey. Maybe yeah, a and, movies. and, and yeah. three movies. Yeah, it's like you're ready. You're, you'd be steeped, steeped in the lore. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's a simple matter of that. We haven't talked much about yet. Uh, this movie won an Oscar for costume design. Oh, my and God. I think it's warranted because, damn, uh, they're good. Sure. And period pieces, you know, always lean a little heavier on that category. Um, the movie is beautiful top to bottom, though, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the way it's filmed is part of that, but just the sets, like you said, they aren't even sets. They're just real locations dressed with what I assume is actual antique furniture. Um, beautiful, ornate stuff everywhere. When when did red rooms like dark red rooms go out of fashion? Because I like dark red rooms. I would like to have a dark red room. I think Fifty Shades of Grey killed it. You'll never see a red room for fifty years because uh, everybody that, assumes that's so. where the rich boys go to spank you. But no, I I agree. <laughs> okay. The rich use of like we I all my life like I came out of uh, maybe a, uh, uh, inadvisable use of color like in the 70s and 80s where everything was that gross mustard yeah, yeah. avocado and mustard yellow mm-hmm. but and and but now things for my entire adult life have been taupe and gray and, and now and, trending into just stark white yeah yeah and then not just that but the layers and the textures and the wallpapers right. and the chair rails and the crown molding and i mean shit's I expensive not everybody we can't yeah but right. paint's cheap so <laughs> true and, and i'll say like you know, you're talking about layers and layers of stuff. I think it's hilarious that the, the, the opulent wealth, I think, is signified by one thing that I noticed in the background more than anything else. There is a shot, a room in this movie that is a library, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, covered in books. And mm-hmm. then they have hung extraordinarily fancy paintings over the top of the books. And I'm thinking what kind of person hangs paintings over their shelves of books 
well, it's a person with too many paintings and too many books, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, they just have too much stuff. They Even in their 15-room mansion, they can't contain all the stuff they have. It's yeah, incredible. and that's the that's the the conspicuous wealth. This uh, like it, it's it's one thing to have a nice thing or two, you know. Like I'm really into cigars, so I'm going to get an antique cigar snip and this mm-hmm. and that. But like, and you there's so many shots things, just impressing right? impressing you that they literally had the best of everything all the time. And so that none of it means anything. To none them. of it. It's no, just all special, layers right? of for other people. They don't enjoy that stuff. Like. That's or even the if thing they do, about they they have so much of it that they can't particularly enjoy any bit of it. It's just right. I have stuff. This is my stuff, and I like my stuff. That's it. It looks like I would call like if if this were a, if, I, if this was a trailer, I would say it's cluttered and and messy. But sure. because it's a turn of the it's a it's a fucking mansion, it's cultured and textured. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, it is a lot. God damn those smoking those cigarettes those, those cigar scenes made me want to smoke cigars in a in a <laughs> burgundy leather chair in front of a fire with a with a scotch in my hand. Sure. Uh, I thought we, guy, but, with this yeah. Oscar talk, I thought you were going to go to like how relatively undecorated this movie is from an acting standpoint. Like Dan- Daniel Day Lewis did get get mentioned for best actor. Michelle oh, Pfeiffer yeah, yeah. didn't get it for best actor. Uh, no best director uh, for Scorsese. Scorsese. Um, and I was going to be outraged, but holy shit, this year in Hollywood, it was ran it? up against the buzzsaw of Schindler's List, and not uh, just that. Schindler's List, Spielberg. Fugitive, and the name of the father, the piano, remains of the day. These are, ex- yeah, like Daniel Day Lewis got nominated for an Oscar for In the Name of the Father. So like, <laughs> okay, like wild, he, and, and and Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia. Like I, I, all of these, this wasn't like one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, um, uh, the Forrest Gump won over Goodfellas. It was like, oh yeah, this is oh Jesus, look at this. You know, he's going, you know, he's going against uh, Tom Hanks uh, in Philadelphia, Liam Neeson in Schindler's List, Anthony Hopkins remains of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's it's it's pretty it's pretty fucking crazy um, and. Like, I really think Daniel Day-Lewis is essential for this movie. I think he brings a very specific something to it. I don't think this is his best performance by a long shot. But it is. I kept on thinking, like, I can't believe because uh, in, in the last year I've seen Lincoln and uh, Gangs of New York. Mm-hmm. And before that, the year before that, we saw uh, The Last of Mohicans. What fucking range this guy's got? This yeah. is what... And then, um, like those are all so different characters. In fact, this character is so different than anything I've ever seen. The closest I can come to is like the Phantom Thread. Is uh-huh. is most similar Certainly. to his Phantom Thread kind of genteel urbane kind of guy, but it's just his voice and his mannerisms are entirely a different person. And the other crazy thing about this is like uh, this is the one film where I couldn't find just reams and reams of shit about uh Daniel Day-Lewis's method acting. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if it was there or I like, it's just like, you know, well, I just, he just lived in a, a an 1890s uh, hotel in New York city in uh, spats and tails for three months to get everything, the chain smoking cigars with silver. So I, I don't, I don't know, but like, I didn't see any of those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's but, not a ton of information about this movie on like certainly on Wikipedia. 
Yeah, I need to see. I, I heard there's a lot of good stuff. There's a book called Scorsese on Scorsese, which is kind of like him commenting on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess there's some interesting passages on like him defending like uh, to Epic Mouthful's point, like him defending this as like uh, a piece of his work. Like this is very thematically tied to all of my materials because it, like I said, like, in the beginning, this is if Scorsese's films are about anything, it's about rigid social rules and codes of conduct that entrap and immiserate people yeah and keep them from living their best authentic lives and it's entirely the only but, way in which this is different is that we don't mm-hmm. see the induction of the person into that system right he's uh, we're already we pick up like halfway into a scorsese movie which is why yeah. it's an hour shorter than his yeah other like, movies. like this is essentially um picking up right before or because I guess him becoming a made man is getting married. Yeah. Yeah. But he's already like the the date set, the ceremonies. The, yeah. Yeah. He's already um, a lawyer. He's already in this social structure. It's like, yeah, it, it's it picks up halfway into a Scorsese movie, which is fine. I didn't need this movie to be another hour longer. I do think it's crazy going back to the Oscar thing that Winona Ryder got a best supporting actress nomination and mm-hmm. uh, Pfeiffer did not. Now, maybe you argue that she, she is the best actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does she have more screen time than? Maybe a bit. Yeah. Maybe. It's, it's pretty even, but I would call her the lead in this. There are co-leads. There's Daniel Day-Lewis and her. Yeah. I don't know. Angela Bassett is amazing. And what's love got to do with it? I've never seen the piano, which just cleaned the fuck up. Like Holly Hunter and Anne Paquin got both of those. Huh. Um, and I haven't seen the remains of the day, which I, like I said, I now, and I guess I need to see that. And uh, in the name of the father, we're talking about our, our Daniel day Lewis holes. That's, that's a glaring one. Um, yeah. I, I'm not surprised that, that score says he didn't get the director nom. He did. He did get a writing nom. Uh, the Oscars mm-hmm. him and uh, Cox got it but directorially I think like the stuff that he does to inject his scorsese makes this movie actively worse I, I'm, I appreciate when he stops doing that stuff in the movie uh, oh my god I am so wrong about almost filling all of my Dana Day-Lewis holes I, I feel right? like I yeah there's uh, at least four that I haven't seen I have I've seen Gandhi, so there's one. Oh, I haven't seen that. Okay, The Bounty, My Beautiful Laundrette, Room with a View, and Nanu. Nanu. No, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of, of those. The yeah. Unbearable Lightness of Being. I haven't seen that. Stars and Bars, My Left Foot, Ever Smile, New Jersey. None of those. That's, that's huge, huge be, holes. These have to be smaller roles, right? When you get back to like My Beautiful Laundrette, that's it. Might be. I yeah. think that's his first like leading role but i could be totally wrong about that um the bounty i think you would really like it's anthony hopkins mel gibson oh it's uh, a yeah age of sale and it's like yep on the bounty Uh uh-huh i loved that book as a child i'm sure i can't believe i haven't seen it actually oh is it an adaptation of that Uh uh-huh i think so it has to be um so there's yeah uh then then you get into like last mohicans i've seen a bunch of these but i still haven't Mm -hmm. seen in name the father house all crucible um and then uh, I think I've seen most of Wait, uh, the, old, the boxer. And then you start getting into, yeah, the boxer gangs, New York ballad of Jack and Rose. Yeah. I haven't seen that. And the nine, those are in the, in the modern era. The only ones I haven't seen, but yeah, a ton of that stuff. <laughs> but, right. He's uh, got like 10. I haven't seen then. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so still, but I'm now I'm at about fifty percent. I guess I'm feeling better about that. Let's check our Scorsese holes. Yeah, uh, I feel like there are fewer of those for oh me. Oh man, Boxcar Bertha, Mean Street, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Uh, you got to get the Taxi Driver. Then New York, New York, haven't seen that. Raging Bull, yes. King of Comedy, After Hours, nope. Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, I've seen that. Goodfellas, haven't seen Cape Fear. Uh, Age of Innocence Casino, I've seen those. Cundin, I haven't seen that. Uh, Bringing Out the Dead, I haven't. You might have seen that. I haven't seen that. I did. That's a Nick Cage uh, ambulance driver movie. And then I've seen everything since then, with the exception of Hugo, that, that, that kid's film. Oh yeah, I, don't I saw think I'll be you know that anytime soon. Gangs of New York, The Aviator, Departed, Shutter Island, uh, and then I've seen The Irishman. I haven't seen Silence. That was 2016. So I'm I'm doing a little bit better on the Scorsese side. Mm-hmm. But uh, what else do we have to talk about? I think we're about ready to to free ourselves of these this, the social forms and bondage of yeah. recording this podcast. Yeah, well, I like this movie. Uh, probably won't feel the need to watch it again anytime soon, but I enjoy Ooh, it. I'm, I'm burning to uh, epic mouthful. Thank you very much for your commission and for your steadfast, steadfast, steadfast support of the experiment here. We're doing a bald move. I uh, really appreciate that you're enjoying it and uh, participating and supporting. You've done, done some real banger commissions, had some, some rough luck in the, uh, in the baldies, uh, but uh, may the odds ever be in your favor. Again, thanks so much for your generous support. If you've been listening to this podcast and like Epic Mouthful, you thought it's it'd be a good idea to to have Jim and Aaron watch something that you love or maybe something you hate and you want to see if we love it or hate it in the exact same way. If that sounds like a good idea, get yourself to support.baldmove.com. Click commission a podcast, plunk down your money, name your piece of media for us to watch, and then we will work with you from there to make sure that you enjoy the commissioning process again support.baldmove.com commission a podcast thanks once again for epic mouthful by the way uh if you if you look for at Ma- at epic mouthful on instagram and i think twitter she posts just exquisitely beautiful food the type of food that daniel day lewis and michelle pfeiffer would eat at the very finest uh soirees and the upper crust of new york city i cannot believe how, d- how delicious and amazing the food that she posts on her uh at epic mouthful blog is uh, again, thanks to Epic. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>